0: I'm Colleen, and this podcast is an inside look at recovery, which I define as a lifelong journey to get out of your own way. Recovery is about healing the past, finding meaning in the present, and creating a future that's in alignment with your purpose and values. Join me for mindset upgrades that move you from worry and regret to resilience and confidence. I'll share easy strategies for how to feel better without having to make major changes because it's not what you do, it's who you are. Self-care is the path to recovery because our needs are not negotiable. So in this episode, I'm gonna talk about what got me to quit, how I went from being a daily drinker um, consuming at least a bottle of wine a night, um, but more, uh, at the end, you know, a bottle of wine was kind of the minimum there at the end. But in order to talk about what got me to quit, I kind of need to go back to how I started and what my life was like. You know, I drank for 30 years. Um, I started really right at the end of high school. I was never a partier, um, In my youth, we grew up, I grew up in the church and I was a very good girl and I was scared of the partiers and I was always told, you know, you don't need alcohol to have fun and I was shown the dangers of living in the world and all of the problems that kids got into and and so I was really very hesitant and I was a very good girl. And then my parents um, left the church when I was 17. Um, I always said my mom kind of prayed her way out. Uh, and if I did believe in God, I, I was believing that he was the one that brought us out of kind of the oppression of just an over the top, you know, non-denominational evangelical, um, just crazy. It was crazy, um, almost cult-like. And my parents kind of woke up to that one day and so we went from being a family who was in church you know sunday morning for three hours and sunday night and wednesday nights and saturday nights um, to not going at all and i i have to be honest that in hindsight you know it felt like the doors were open on the prison um right about the time i probably would have started you know rattling the cage on my own but In hindsight, it was probably real discombobulating to my identity to grow up with such a strong set of beliefs about the world and all of the things that I considered sinful, you know, from drinking to sex um, to just not going to church all the time. And then all of a sudden to be kind of thrown into a more permissive environment It definitely sent me for, I was ungrounded. I don't want to say I went into a tailspin because I didn't, Um, but I was probably insecure about how to go about being in the world um, with no safety net of my religious beliefs. It was kind of like jumping into the deep end of the swimming pool. You know, I had never been exposed. There was no discussion about alcohol in our home because nobody drank. And so I, I honestly didn't know the difference between a beer and vodka, you know, and I learned the hard way um, very early on that there is a difference. I remember me and a girlfriend, the first time and we I ever drank, um, some boys on spring break went and got us some vodka. And my girlfriend and I drank the whole fifth before the buzz even set in. I was like, we drank it like Kool-Aid because we had literally mixed it with Kool-Aid. And I had horrible alcohol poisoning, but of course was too ashamed. And being underage, we didn't tell an adult that, you know, I probably, I was very, very, very sick. Um, So, you know, I had to learn the hard way. I didn't know about alcohol. And so fast forward into college i was a normal drinker um, most of the time i kept my shit together uh, i wasn't one of those gals that was crying or a lot of drama and fighting you know i fell out of a few porta potties a few times and um, i remember my freshman year i also had my first blackout experience where we somebody had poured Jim Beam or something into the beer bong that I was just elegantly doing. And so I I had a whole bunch of hard liquor in me. And all of a sudden, I come to and I'm like in the basement of the dorm playing cards. And, you know, I always was very careful to put myself in situations where I was safe, or at least felt safe. Um, You know, so I got with my husband, my first husband, and I met literally the same day my dad and mom dropped me off. And so I was always kind of cared for. My first husband was very much a, um, a caretaker. And so I might have been the hot mess in the relationship, but I was very tethered with him. I wasn't putting myself in situations as a single girl or walking alone on campus. You know, I always had him um, to take care of me. And of course, that created problems because I set him up to be kind of my parent, and then I resented him for doing that. Um, but I was just, I was immature in a lot of ways, and I did not know how to take care of myself. And so the only thing I could do, the second best thing, was to find somebody to take care of me. And, uh, you know, we were married for 20 years. He, he did a really good job of taking care of me. But, um, you know, I quickly became, in college, I, I liked drinking. I remember um, it was the summer before I turned 21, and I had gotten a fake idea, ID and was going to the bars every night. And I still remember this night. And a lot of people that end up with alcohol use disorder or some sort of addiction, they do they do remember that first time. And this wasn't my first time, but I do remember being in a bar, drinking beer and thinking I want to feel this way all the time like I just want to go to the bars every night this is so fun and you know that that was a moment where in my mind I really connected and solidified my belief that alcohol was necessary to have a good time and it was a good time and when I drank I felt safe inside my body. I felt comfortable. Um, The social anxiety that I had, the insecurities that I had, all of it just kind of faded away. And I liked being a drinker. I liked hanging around with drinkers. You know, I liked being funny and sarcastic. And I even liked having a hangover. You know, I really enjoyed being um, kind of one of the cool kids because, again, I, I grew up as not one of the cool kids. And so I saw drinking as as a as a bit of an identity and an, an inner circle of people. And if you were a drinker and I was a drinker, we we just instantly kind of had a connection. Um I wasn't ever, you know, I wasn't big on drinking and driving. I didn't do destructive things. Um, you know, my first husband and I, we would get in arguments, but I can't say that alcohol was a problem in our relationship, at least at that time. Um, And then, you know, as I moved into adulthood, I, the first time I got pregnant, you know, immediately I was like, no more alcohol. And the few times that I tested it, you know, my doctor was like, well, you can still have one beer because that was the 90s. Um, you know, I'd get two or three sips in and my body was just like, no, no, this, like I would get dehydrated. I would feel nauseated. So, you know, I have four children and never in my pregnancies, the moment I found out I was pregnant, I was done drinking and there was no trouble, no thoughts about that. And with each child, I did breastfeed. And with each child, I probably introduced alcohol, reintroduced it a little sooner. Um, You know, I learned how to pump and dump. But when I had my babies, I loved them more than I did drinking. Um, And so it wasn't, it was not, alcohol was not something that prevented me from being a mom. I wasn't distracted by thoughts of alcohol. I loved alcohol. I thought it was part of the celebration, but um, I loved my babies more and I enjoyed not drinking when I was with them. It wasn't until 2006 when we took our kids, uh, all four kids, so my youngest was um, maybe two, we took our kids on spring break. And the culture that we were with of people, you know, it was one of those vacations where a bunch of families that we lived with and had kids the same age, we all went to the same area in Florida. And daily drinking was normal everybody was doing it so I was having Grey Goose and Cranberry Grey Goose and Cranberry on the beach and I never got drunk that week I never was um, you know focused on the alcohol we had so much fun as a family but alcohol was a part of it and we drank every single day and this is when my relationship with alcohol really shifted because prior to that trip um especially with little kids i needed a reason to drink you know we're going out on a date or i'm going out with my girlfriends or um you know there's something to do i I didn't drink at home alone it was always social and on that trip when i got back suddenly I remember it was a Sunday night. It was a huge trip home, you know, because we drove four kids. You can just imagine the laundry. We had school the next day. And we finally, two days of just traveling and stress, getting everybody ready for school, getting everybody in bed. That night, I remember thinking, I'm not ready for my vacation to end. And there was still vodka. You know, we had traveled home with a lot of our food. And I poured myself a vodka and cranberry. I think my husband had work to do or something, and I made myself a drink and um, watched a show. And that was really the first night that I could have, that I can recount that I drank alone, and it wasn't with anybody else. And that marked the beginning of my daily drinking habit. I went from needing a reason to drink. To needing a reason to not drink so anytime you know I had evening I used to teach aerobics and yoga and anytime I had an evening class you know I I wouldn't drink until I got home Um, but you know I didn't drink at meetings for my kids school I, I did things in the evenings without any problems with alcohol but I needed a reason to not drink, so if I didn't have something to do in the evenings, I was pouring wine by five o'clock when I was making dinner or when I got home, you know, and I remember thinking it was a little weird. Um, I went through this yoga training, and on Thursday nights, you know, it was an intense like five-hour hot power yoga and multiple sessions of it and big, and I would get home at 11 o'clock at night, and even though I had to get up the next morning I would still want to get in my two glasses of wine on those nights I would just limit it to two instead of a whole bottle but that was the relationship I had with alcohol for a really long time I kind of kept it to about a bottle a night Uh, it would be great if I only had two glasses but one bottle was the normal and I kind of held at that tolerance for a really long time and I never saw that as a problem. Like now it sounds so like, what? Like, really? Um, But I thought, in hindsight, I was wrong. But I thought all my friends were drinking a bottle of wine every night. Like I just didn't really understand that uh, it was a problem. I was still up running in the morning or exercising. I was extremely high functioning. I did not struggle with hangovers with the one bottle of wine a night rule. Um, I was, and I was happy. I didn't have many mental health issues. You know, in hindsight I did, but I didn't ever attribute any negative side effects to the alcohol, if you will. And then um, my first husband and I, after 20 years of marriage, um, we fell apart. And honestly, during the divorce time, um, I knew I had to keep my shit together. So I actually drank less in that divorce time. Um, I just, I couldn't necessarily afford the wine. I couldn't, you know, I was busy working. So I would still drink a couple of glasses most nights, but I wasn't out partying. Like my drinking consumption didn't tick up when I went through the divorce. It really didn't tick up until I met my current husband. And suddenly we were going on trips and dating and it was just, there was just no limit to the wine. And very quickly, too quickly, uh, to be honest, we moved in together and we blended families. So I had four kids and he had three kids and most of them were teenagers. And the stress with the exes and just the kids and all of it. I can see at that time that my relationship with alcohol changed again, where I started drinking to relieve my stress. Um, And that's another really big red flag for drinkers. When you drink for stress, I know this now, didn't know it then, um, your brain reacts differently to alcohol. And when you're drinking for stress, um, it's just a much slipperier slope to addiction. Um, into the alcohol use disorder spectrum. So I went on for years um, and slowly at this point, I'm also developing a higher and higher tolerance. So I could do a bottle of wine as a warm up lap. And about this time was when I started hiding um, how much I was drinking. So I would open a bottle of wine and keep it on the counter. Meanwhile, I've got vodka in my Yeti and i was really good at hiding the amount that i consumed from myself because i didn't really want to count how much you know anytime i started really looking at it i'd be like and i think subconsciously my way around that was i had multiple bottles of vodka and i would keep them um, as all good parents should i would keep them hidden in my bathroom or in a storage room and i would move it around a lot um because you know i didn't want the kids to find it because i was probably gonna win mother of the year every single year and i so i would buy a lot of vodka like i remember i used to think i was so super funny because i had some formula about how many bottles of vodka i would get at costco and how much money it would save me the more vodka i bought the the more money i would save wait for it buckle up I would save more money by buying more vodka because that meant I had to go to Costco less. (laughs) Because of course, when you go to Costco, it's a minimum $200 cover charge. So I would laugh, you know, and I would buy like four and five and six of the mega Kirkland vodka. And, you know, I would tell myself that would last me all summer. It didn't. But honestly, I couldn't really even tell you how long it lasted because of course I'd pick up vodka at the grocery too, here and there. And I just had so much open that I could never account for how much I was actually drinking. In hindsight, brilliant strategy for denial. Um, So my tolerance went up and Like I said, I could do a a bottle of wine as a warm-up lap, you know, and then go to the party and drink through the party and then come home and drink at home again. You know, it got to the point where I couldn't go to bed. I always had a glass right next to the bed. Like I couldn't stop drinking. You know, in my early days, the first 10 years of drinking, I always would switch to water at some point in the night so that I wasn't going to bed. Um, And probably sometime around when I became a daily drinker, I couldn't go to bed without it. So I would drink before a party. I was always pretty good about keeping myself in check in public, you know, keeping it to two at the maximum of three. Um, I knew not to get drunk in public. I rarely, not to say I never did this, you know, at a New Year's Eve party or a girl's night or something, but when I was in public, I, I controlled how much I was drinking and I was very aware of slurring. And so it, it didn't happen very often. I do remember a few Christmas parties where I tried to be anorexic because all of a sudden that day, I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm fat and not eating anything and then showing up at the Christmas party and being in the bathroom vomiting before dinner. So for sure, I won some really s- stupid awards for dumb ass. But for the most part, I kept my shit together. But as my tolerance grew, my body's ability to handle it it just got harder and harder. So I did start experiencing hangovers. And also it was starting to affect my mental health. Now, again, I didn't connect the mental health with the alcohol use. I had no idea that my biggest source of stress was alcohol. And I had no idea that the depression and the anxiety and the confusion and the stress that I felt was because I was drinking so much. I was drinking in my head, I told myself I was drinking because I had so much stress. I didn't realize that stress is not really a reflection of what's going on in the outside world. Those are stressors stress is our own ability to tolerate the situation it's it's the emotional resilience factor and my emotional resilience was really starting to fall and it got to the point where i just felt like i all day long i was just pretending and i remember even, you know, going out with girlfriends and having lunch, which, you know, you think you're supposed to look forward to that. I didn't really even want to go. I just, I got to the point where I was exhausted and everything I did was basically just shit I had to do so that I could land back in my kitchen with my bottle of wine slash Yeti full of vodka at night. And so when I look at what happened that moved me into sobriety. I was very good about protecting my brain from um, suggest, from podcasts and books that talked about sobriety because I didn't want to hear the truth. I didn't even know Quitlet was a thing. I didn't listen to sober podcasts. The only thing I knew about sobriety was that there was AA. I didn't know that there's this whole culture and community that I'm now a part of, and and that there's multiple pathways to recovery, and that there's all sorts of things, sober curious, and Cali sober, and whatever the fuck you wanna call it, don't call me sober, like whatever. I had no idea. So me hiding what I was going through was obviously a sign of my addiction, um, not just hiding it from myself, but keeping myself from looking for answers. Now, there was a few things, but I can't say that the solutions I found led me to uh, to my sobriety. You know, I did try naltrexone, um, and my husband is a doctor, so he was able to write that prescription for me. And, you know, I kind of told him a half-truth. I told him, you know, obviously I think I'm drinking too much. But really, because I'm a coach, I'd really like to see if this works. Um, And whatever, he wrote me the script. And I did naltrexone for a couple of weeks. um, And that's, it's supposed to just... Like if you go to a doctor, I think they're supposed to tell you in the United States that you can't drink on that medication. But I had listened to some YouTube about how this woman, when you use the drug appropriately, you're supposed to drink with it because it kills the 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 way your brain fires around alcohol and then it the reward isn't there and then you just stop. And I found that to some extent. So I would take it, you know, three or four o'clock in the afternoon and And But I I can't say I didn't drink as much. I didn't enjoy it, that was a true story, but I wasn't able, I still didn't, it, it probably decreased the amount that I drank a little bit, but it didn't change, it wasn't the answer. And in the end, I felt like the medication was actually making me tired. Well, yeah, hello, Sherlock, it could probably also be the amount of alcohol you're drinking, but... I didn't feel good on the medication. I wasn't getting any results that I had hoped for, Um, you know. And I remember thinking, I just need to be hypnotized. Like, I just need I just want to forget about alcohol. So I would read self-hypnosis books. But again, I never looked for help with my alcohol use disorder. When I look back, there was just a few little nuggets. Like one of my favorite podcasts to this day is Armchair Experts with Dak Shepard. And he, he, that podcast is not about sobriety, but he's sober. And so every now and then he would talk with a guest who might also be sober. And I remember one time listening to this woman, I don't remember it, I've gone back and I can't find the podcast, I don't know who it was. Because there's like 500 episodes right now, like uh, whatever. But it was this woman, and they were talking about sobriety and the and the and the good parts and the and the hard parts. You know, it's hard in the evening when everybody's drinking, but they love when they're the first ones up in the morning, and everybody's like walking around like zombies. And the woman said, "Sobriety is a superpower." And so, in the six months, probably maybe a year, up bef- to before um, I decided to quit, that podcast alone introduced me to to the fact that there was more than one way to look at sobriety. You know, my, I used to have a t-shirt that said, it's all fun and games until somebody ends up in rehab. And my brother and I, who's now sober now, we sometimes would have drunken late night conversations and we always would end our call with, see you in rehab. Like that was funny to, to me. And And so I didn't really see a way out of drinking. I didn't know that sobriety could be a superpower. Sobriety could be sexy. Like that could be a thing that I would want to step into. And that I could step into it without hitting rock bottom, without having to go to rehab and crash and burn inside my life. But that podcast really allowed me to to begin that planted the seed okay i I wasn't thinking real deep about it but that planted the seed that that might be something i would want to do because i was just so tired you know that would be one thing i would say why did i quit i was exhausted you know that dynorphin that is produced when you drink that kind of counteracts the dopamine that, that puts you into such a state of apathy my whole life was like an ugly color of gray. I, I didn't have pleasure. I didn't look forward to anything. Um, and in addition, as I now know also, alcohol keeps regular drinkers have chronically high levels of cortisol. And so I was just in this chronic, overwhelmed, blah state. And also with alcohol, I didn't know at the time, I thought I slept great because I was in bed for eight hours a night. Um, and passed out every night, but I didn't know that alcohol interferes with your REM sleep. So there's a reason I was exhausted. There's a reason my emotional health was depleting because REM sleep is where our mind, um, you know, kind of tidies up, if you will, our emotions of the day and processes and, you know, allows us to learn new things. You know, that was another thing. I had gotten to the point I don't know where I heard the term wet brain, but I felt like I remember thinking I have a wet brain. Like I would put my credit card number in to purchase something online. And not only did I not know my own credit card number, which for me, my whole life, I've known all my numbers everywhere all the time. And, and some of your numbers. I mean, I can remember numbers. I can remember my phone number from you know, kindergarten. Um, but I, I couldn't even transfer four digits at a time without forgetting it. And some of that was distraction, but some of that was because I was so distracted by my drinking, I couldn't think about anything else. Um, And it was just constantly running in my subconscious. You know, it's kind of like, trying to watch Netflix on your computer when you're also running. Like for me, if I'm running my podcast software and I'm running iMovie and I'm like, you can't run all that at the same time. And alcohol just got to a point where it was taking up so much of my bandwidth, whether it be from the physical effects or the emotional and the mental, like whatever, I couldn't even focus. So I remember thinking I have wet brain. I cannot remember a credit card number. I couldn't remember names. I was afraid to look people in the eye. You know, I was real good with the concealer. And if I did show up in public, I would always show up on my best, but I wouldn't look you in the eye because I don't care how much vising you have. I had red rims, you know, like my eyes, you know, and now I look at pictures from the last year of my drinking, God, I was a puffy mess. And, you know, that was also part of my isolation. I didn't want to be seen. um, And it took so much effort. So if I was going to go out or I had, had something where I would see people, I would literally get up and run like five and six miles or do hot yoga and sweat it all out and just drink so much water. So I really couldn't be anywhere before noon because that took me a lot. Because, again, my tolerance was so high and I was drinking so much. So I was exhausted. I couldn't remember anything. You know, another thing I remember, I was going to try to learn this song on the piano, and I haven't played in like 30 years, but I was natural at that. And um, I couldn't do it. Like I could not make my fingers and my brain even just like some basic stuff like just remembering stuff I used to play that I've always been able to sit down you know and it's been 10 years since I've touched a piano and I can bust out one song and everyone's like oh I didn't know you play and I'm a one-hit wonder so I get up and I drop the mic but I couldn't do any of that and so you know what got me to quit when I really look at all of it I would say number one was exhaustion um And just the cognitive dissonance, the shame I felt knowing I was full of shit. And as a coach now, um, in training, you know, they talk about, well, ask people, help people vision the future without alcohol. You know, what would you be doing if you weren't drinking? What do you want for your life? And to be honest, I know that that's kind of not a great question because I had no idea. Like... I didn't quit because I wanted a better life. I quit because I just didn't have the energy to keep going. Like it was really, really dark. And I can't say that I had like thoughts of suicide or anything, but I basically, thank God, I just hit a brick wall. I couldn't think anymore. I couldn't laugh. I couldn't connect. I couldn't set goals. You know, so I'm very tender with people when I talk on the phone, you know, to not like put it in their face of what do you want? What 10 goals would you achieve if you didn't drink alcohol? Like, fuck, I had no idea. Um, I just needed to give my, I just needed it to stop. Why did I quit? Because I needed it to stop. And I would say the the thing um what, what, what I did, what was I doing on the day that I made the phone call? So let's get to that story and then I'll wrap it up. My sister had told me that I needed to read Glennon Doyle's um, Untamed. And she goes, you're going to just make major changes in your life. And at the time, you know, due to my mental health state, not necessarily anything else, I thought my marriage was on the rocks and I was when she told me that book recommendation i'm like well fuck! if i read that book i'm either going to have to quit drinking or i'm going to have to get a divorce or like both like i don't want to read that book and she was talking about it for i don't know how long could have been weeks could have been months but i finally was like all right i'm gonna start it like i don't even know what happened and, um, so I was listening to Glennon Doyle and she's sober and was talking about, you know, she had gotten sober at 25. So, you know, of course the, my triggers inside me are like, well, it's too late for me to get sober. You know, I'm 46 years old and I've already missed the window. There's no point, you know, look at her. She's a successful author and a speaker and all this stuff. Like I'll never be that. So like, what's the point? Like that's the drinker mindset. Um, I'm super glad that that, that bullshit's mostly gone, but so I was listening to this book and listening to her sobriety story. Um, and again, her book isn't about sobriety, so it was somewhat safe for me. You know, I would have never picked up, say, Holly Whitaker's Quit Like a Woman. I would have never picked up some "Quit Lit," but Glennon Doyle didn't qualify. And I was listening to it on Audible because, fuck, I couldn't read. I couldn't. Focus on a page like that's been one of the greatest joys of sobriety is being able to read again Um, When I was drinking, I could listen to a book and I still love to listen to a book But I could not focus on the words of the page. So I was listening to it and it was Tuesday uh, April 21st, uh, which is my ex-husband's birthday. So happy birthday to that guy for this. But I was out running and it was a very subconscious surreal experience in my memory i remember um i left for my run and i got about halfway up my the hill in my cul-de-sac i'm in indiana it's not really a hill but whatever a little incline and i was about halfway up and all of a sudden i'm on my phone and googling the aaa hotline and it was like my hand just took over. And I was like, I can't take this anymore. And I called the hotline. And I remember saying, somebody answered. And I said, okay, I just want to be clear. I'm safe. Uh, This isn't like a a emergency mental health situation. Uh, I'm not in any danger. But I need to quit drinking. And I don't know what to do. And I need help with this. And yeah, And this beautiful woman on the other end of the line was there for me and she held space. And she's like, okay, you know, this is it for you. We're gonna do this with you. And um, she took my information, she talked to me a little bit and she said, do you want me to have um, a temporary sponsor call you? And I was like, yeah, I do. Um, And she said, okay, I mean, can you look online? She was, we could get you into a meeting right now. This was at like 8.57. And she helped me find the list of meetings right there on my phone while talking to her. And there was one, and I, because this was during COVID. And so a lot all of their meetings or a lot of their meetings had moved online. So I was extremely lucky in this moment that I was literally out in the middle of a country road with my dog running. And I was able to write that in there, go to my first AA meeting. And um, I did it with my camera off, didn't put my name in, but I just listened. And it was not something, you know, I, I, it was fine. Can I just say that? It was fine. The people were nice. You know, I didn't see people necessarily that, you know, there was no motivational speaker that day, you know, it was a couple of old, du- old dudes, a couple of, you know, middle-aged women, maybe a young woman, maybe a young dude. I mean, it it was just fine. It was just some people holding some space, and it was, it was a place for me to be. Um, I listened. And then by the time the meeting ended, my temporary sponsor called me, and that was it. That was it for me. I had said the words out loud, and then I had asked for help, and I allowed them to help me. You know, and the way where I'm at in life right now and very quickly in early sobriety, I realized that AA as an organization wasn't for me, Um, but they were my angels. They were my first responders and any program can work if you work it. I was just fortunate to find that there's other pathways to recovery that fit me better. But my gal, her name was Jenny. She sat and talked with me um, that for like two hours that day. And one of the, the two things, the two things that she gave me that I can offer, um, I was just spinning, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to tell my husband and I didn't know what to to say about all this. And I didn't, and she goes, Colleen, you don't have to figure anything out. You just have to not drink today. There will be time to make sense of the past and plan the future all you have to do is not drink today can you do that and i felt like i could you know i I don't know that everybody feels that way but just exposing myself and allowing myself to be seen gave me enough of a connection with with my motivation to do this and i knew i could call her if i needed to but Lucky for me, I'm kind of a type of person that once I make a decision, like the I'll figure out the details later I'm doing this. So you don't have to figure everything out was immediately quieting to my spiritual self, like, OK, all right, I'm going to be like, I am not OK and that's OK. I can just be not OK right now and just not drink. And, and that will get me forward. So that was super powerful. And then the second thing that she told me or or shared with me was to play the tape forward. And to this day, if I had to pick like one mental health tool that when it comes to alcohol, that would be it. Um, Play the tape forward. So anytime I would think, which I honestly didn't, like I said, I'm kind of a light switch sort of person. But if I ever thought about having a drink, I would play the tape like, okay, let's let's say you're going to have that drink. What comes next? How are you going to feel? How long are you going to feel good? Then what? Then what? What? What about tomorrow? And the play the tape tool um, was really powerful. So I'm going to wrap it up with that because I could talk for hours. Um, That was my day one. And what got me to quit was really, really small things, um, allowing some windows. But honestly, it was another person talking to me and holding space for me without judgment and letting me know that it was going to be okay, that it was okay to not be okay, and that there was hope. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, please take the time to rate and review the show so that other people can find it. I really appreciate it. And check out the show notes for any resources I've mentioned, including links to follow me on Instagram and join my private Facebook group where I connect with my tribe every day. I love it in there and we have so much fun. And finally, If you're ready to redefine sobriety so that you can feel excited about quitting drinking, follow the link to my 10 Days to Spontaneous Sobriety course where I will help you eliminate, eradicate, obliterate, cancel your desire to drink because looking and feeling your best is addictive too. I'll see you soon.